Let's join together in prayer. We pray, our gracious God, that your word might encourage and refresh us and bless us as we think together about this chapter and the flow of the things that have been happening in Daniel, that we also might have courage to stand before kings and queens and testify to your grace and wonder. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's probably not many people in the Western world who have not heard of the fictional egg character by the name of Humpty Dumpty. Yes, uh, that Humpty Dumpty. The one who sat on the wall, who fell off and ended up staying a scrambled egg because none of the king's horses or the king's men could put him together again. Now, in case you don't know where Humpty Dumpty came from, here's what I found. Some historians believe Humpty Dumpty was simply a device for a riddle around breakable things. Others have suggested that Humpty Dumpty is King Richard III of England, who is supposed to have been humpbacked and who was defeated at the Battle of Bosworth Field in 1485. In that case, you can assume that Humpty Dumpty was the king, that the wall is his reign and his fight to preserve power, the fall is his defeat, and all the king's horses and all the king's men, the army that failed to prevail. Another theory is that Humpty Dumpty is actually a cannon. During the Civil War, English Civil War, English Civil War, history says a one-eyed gunner named Thompson managed to get a cannon, which was called Humpty Dumpty, to the top of the tower of St Mary at the Walls Church and wreak untold destruction on the forces below before return cannon fire dislodged the pair of them. Hence, had a great fall was very apt. Now, if the question is, what has Humpty Dumpty got to do with Daniel chapter 5, then I think there's a connection there that's pretty obvious. In Daniel 5, we meet and greet a new king who rose to the power of the Babylonian throne succeeding Nebuchadnezzar. And this new king's name was Belshazzar, not to be confused with Daniel's Babylonian name of Belshazzar. Now in some ways the appearing of this new king is perplexing. Out of nowhere he appears. No introduction, no conclusion, after the last words of the chapter are spoken. He's here for one chapter. He's king and he's gone. We meditated already upon the foibles and the messages of God to Nebuchadnezzar for four chapters and suddenly here is Belshazzar. It reminds us again that Daniel is primarily concerned, the book of Daniel that is, with the spiritual conflict between God and his people and his messengers with the children of the world and in this case the kingdom of Babylon. Rather giving us the intricate details of Jewish chronology and events of world history at this time, he wants the writer wants to focus our hearts on the conflict that's happening between God and the kings of Babylon. And that's one reason why the story of Belshazzar is introduced and so quickly 
abruptly concluded. No word of explanation, no word of background, no word of context, just this one appearance in one chapter. And what became of Belshazzar, the king, is what befell Humpty Dumpty in the children's tale. He fell. In fact, he had such a nasty, swift, unexpected and terrible fall that any of his horses, and I don't know how they could have helped anyway, nor any of his men had any chance at all to do anything for this king. Yes, he did a Humpty Dumpty. He fell badly. To fill in the detail of how bad, let's note these things that Daniel 5 tells us about this king. First note in verses 1 to 4 that it tells us about the king and his feast. The first snapshot we have of Belshazzar as a king is doing what kings normally do. They invite their nobles and friends and supporters and have a slap-up banquet, a feast, some sort of show of their wealth, as well as an excuse to generally have a good time. Now, at first glance, there's nothing unusual about this feast, but as you look behind the scenes, perhaps it wasn't the right time for feasting. See, Belshazzar had inherited a very big empire from his ancestor, Nebuchadnezzar, a very rich empire too. Nothing surpassed the buildings of Babylon. But Belshazzar also seemed to inherit the pride that went along with the position, that is, a real strong sense of self-confidence and the might of his empire that was behind him. It wasn't without reason. Babylon was regarded to be impregnable. There was a hundred kilometres of walls around the city. They were 50 metres high. They were 30 metres thick. Four chariots could ride abreast on top of the wall and a 10 metre moat surrounded it as well. What's more, they had 20 years' supply of food on hand. They had the river Euphrates flowing right through the heart of the city. And while there was talk about the advancing Persian army, they were never considered a threat because nobody believed that Babylon could fall. How wrong they were. When on this night of feasting and merrymaking, they were totally unprepared for what was to come. If King Belshazzar had been given a chance to reflect upon his actions, no doubt he would have wished that instead of feasting, he'd been more on guard. Now, feasting is one thing, but when feasting leads to foolishness, and that foolishness involves trifling with holy things, then that feasting is dangerous. But the text tells us, that as part of his feasting, Belshazzar got out from his treasury the golden and silver vessels, the cups and the bowls that Nebuchadnezzar, his ancestor, had captured from the temple in Jerusalem. And he began to propose toasts in them to the gods of wood and stone, silver and bronze and gold. This was another example, perhaps the highlight 
the main example of Belshazzar's pride. It led him to treat sacrilegiously the things of the Lord, the holy things of God. It showed to him that the God of Israel was nothing, that he neither feared him nor had the slightest regard for what might be pleasing to him. This attitude, as we read through the scripture of Daniel, comes hot on the heels of the changed attitude of Nebuchadnezzar at the end of the last chapter, who was so humbled because of this kind of pride. God humbled him and brought him down. And we could add that this pride led Belshazzar into idolatry. He did not take notice of his ancestors' words in chapter 4, that the Lord God is the one true God, nor the awful humbling his father experienced, but he praised the multitude of gods with which he was more comfortably associated with. Second, verses 5 to 16 tell us about the king and his fears. His feasting, as we read, concerned soon turned sour by one unexpected party pooper. It seems that the king sat at the front of the large banquet hall in a small recess that had walls off to the side that he could only see. And what he saw made him quake in his boots. At first he might have been hoping it was some sort of party trick or some kind of joke, but when the hand did not go away and when the writing did what it did, mysterious to him... The king's knees turned to jelly and they began to knock together. We see that in verse 6. And this was followed by that earnest attempt to find someone to tell us what the graffiti says. But the search is in vain. Once more, the royal advisers and the royal magicians and the royal wizards are also dumbfounded by the whole thing. It's beyond them. They cannot explain it. All this must have just confirmed the king in his absolute fear. The Babylonians were a superstitious people and for a hand to write on a wall suddenly appearing would have been a bad omen indeed. Now we have our own expression, the writing was on the wall. In our language, which means we understand it to be, well, the end was near. We could see it coming. The writing was on the wall. And maybe this was what Belshazzar also understood. And it wasn't until the queen mother drew the king's attention to Daniel, one of the exiles, who is now nearing 80 years old and has been put out to pasture, shuffled away from life at the tops to some obscure office in the bureaucracy, that the mystery becomes clear. Now let's give this woman some praise because she was clearly wise and brave and of no little influence because she addressed the king directly and she called upon the king to remember certain things. Her words about Daniel spoke words, worlds about Daniel himself and about God's care and love for his servants. It seems that Daniel was quite forgotten by Belshazzar, but the queen clearly remembered him. Maybe she had seen his deeds and performance with her own eyes. 
and her tremendous respect for Daniel remained. Can you see it there in three ways? First of all, she remembered his name. She called him Belshazzar like Nebuchadnezzar did. She didn't call him Belshazzar. She called him Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar. The queen saw the true identity of this man and she called him by his real name. God's blessings to his servants are sometimes small, but they are sweet. Daniel had been used by the Lord, but seems to be forgotten. I wonder what Daniel felt like in that circumstance. So many things that he had to offer. So much wisdom he could give. At least the queen remembered his name. Notice she also saw something in him. She didn't just remember his name, she saw something in him. She said, this man has the spirit of the holy gods in him. He was a man who manifested the fact that he was actually indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It showed in the energy of his life, even at this late stage. He was a man who was honest, open, could read him like a book. And he had spiritual wisdom. What a compliment to be given. Thirdly, she testified to his life because she saw that it was holy. She says a spirit of the holy God or spirit of the holy gods is in this man. I don't know what she thought about Daniel's monotheism, his belief in one God. I don't know what she's professing here. But note the adjective holy. She knows Daniel's God must be holy. How does she know that? Well, Nebuchadnezzar had confessed that Daniel's God was holy. But you know what? She must have seen the holiness of Daniel. And she knew that such a holy man must serve a holy God. That's how it works, isn't it? The God that you worship, hopefully you become like him more and more. It's a testimony to his character. It's worth remembering here that though Daniel had been put out to pasture, locked away in obscurity, that is God's purposes for him had not been forgotten. When Nebuchadnezzar was in power, God saw to it that Daniel, his representative in Babylon, had plenty of opportunities to witness before the king and it seems the seeds Daniel Planted were watered by God and fruit was born in Nebuchadnezzar. But with the death of Nebuchadnezzar and the rise of Belshazzar and the fact that Daniel has been shunted off to obscurity, all this has not stopped God's plan. In the end, Daniel was on hold for this very purpose and this very moment. It's a testimony to the sovereign rule of God that in the wings, uh, for such a time as this, the phrase we find in the book of Esther, there was the faithful servant ready to serve. Thirdly, in Daniel 5, verses 17 to 28, tells us about the king and his fall. While the handwriting on the wall was a mystery for the king, the meaning and interpretation of it was not at all unclear for Daniel. In fact, it could not have been more clear. Hebrew words. Simply conveying to Daniel that the king's time is up. 
And the reason? He had not humbled himself before the Lord. He had exalted himself over the Lord. He had boasted of his own might and power and strength by means of toasting, drinking toasts to idols from the cups of the Lord's temple. It was an action that the Lord saw and he was not pleased. It could be asked whether or not Belshazzar really believed what Daniel said would become of him. But in the end, he had no time really to act upon it, did he? For that very night, his life was demanded of him. That very night, he had to surrender everything that he had built and inherited in his kingdom and gave it all away to the invading powers. And like it was with Humpty Dumpty, it was a fall that none of his men could ever, ever deal with. Well, how do we apply Daniel chapter 5? It's a chapter replete with many lessons and though we've been looking at the earthly king, Belshazzar, the lessons are not really about him about, but about the other king in the story, that is the heavenly king, the Lord God himself. He's firstly the God who brings down pride. There is perhaps no clearer warning about the danger of pride in the whole of the scriptures than these last two chapters we've looked at, chapter 4 and 5. There we meet kings who are so wrapped up in their own little world, so dominated by thoughts of their own importance, so intent on leaving God out of the picture of building a world that God has no part the only way for God to deal with them is to bring them down. You'll know the proverb, pride comes before a fall. Well, the stories of these two kings illustrate that perfectly. In Nebuchadnezzar's case, his pride caused his head to swell. In Belshazzar's case, his pride caused his mouth to boast. And this boasting led him to act with contempt towards holy things and what's worse we see this pride run in the family do you know we're talking about father and grandson yes i know the text says your father and you are his son but it's widely understood to be a reference to the fact that nebuchadnezzar was his ancestor just like the jews of jesus day claimed abraham as their father their ancestor this king Belshazzar was a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar whom God had humbled and yet his heart remained proud and arrogant. It ran like the the nose, it ran in the family. That was a joke. Sin does that. Sin does that. He had not learned the expensive lesson that his ancestor had been taught. There was apparently one, just one in the court who remembered what happened. Oh, yeah, your grandfather. Hmm. We ought not note we ought to note that boasting is not necessarily restricted to powerful kings. In the New Testament we find Paul addressing the believers, telling them their boasting is not good. 
Their boasting adds nothing to the cause of Christ. We find Paul telling them that love builds up but pride puffs up. We find Paul dealing with people who thought they were indispensable to the plan of God and who boasted over their position or even their better righteousness than those of others. Such boasting is not and cannot be of the Lord, nor does it have a place among his followers. That's not to say that pride is seen in boasting alone. Boasting is just one form of this particular sin that we are reminded of here. Second, we're taught about the God who sees all. It seems to me the handwriting on the wall and the subsequent message to the king via Daniel would have been enough to convince the king that he'd forgotten one thing above all and that no matter what he did, whether he did it in secret or in public and no matter what he said, that God was his witness. God would hear. God would see. See, when Daniel gave the king God's message, it showed that God had seen everything and heard everything the king had done and said. And the king must have been afraid at that, that he was like an open book before God, nothing hidden. If only more people in this generation felt that way. If only leaders and rulers of nations spoke their every word with the thought that everything they said and everything they did will be brought into review by a holy God. And if only believers lived that way, every word, every deed, every thought, Everything is laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do everything. Thirdly, lastly, the lesson here is about the God who rules over all. Did Babylon fall because of the might of the Persians or because God so decreed that Babylon's time was up? It was the latter. The whole history of the world is the latter. One king rises to be defeated by another whom God raises up, who falls to another whom God raises up, and to another. But in all, it's God who is sovereignly ruling over all and carrying out his will according to his good pleasure. And if he gave one king 12 months' warning and gave him time to repent before humbling him, and if he gave another king just a matter of hours' notice. And that's just an illustration of his sovereign right to rule, that in wrath he may sometimes remember mercy, but he does not have to. If he dealt with Pharaoh and he dealt with Nebuchadnezzar, then he can deal with any, for he is king of kings and does whatever he pleases. And he does not forget his servants, though they may be slight and slighted in the sight of the world. Yet they are there, protected by him, 
standing confidently for him against the overwhelming odds of might only being the only one. Friends, don't forget the handwriting on the wall. It's something everyone has to face. The day of the Lord will come and he will avenge for everything. He has promised he will. Vengeance is mine, he says. The only safe place is to be standing in Christ and him alone. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we bring thanks to you today for this, your word, which is a challenge. It helps us to see how all things, according to your purpose, have come to be. And it points us forward that one day we stand before you as judge and the only one in whom we can find any help will not be ourselves, our family members or any wealth or money or fame or riches that we had but only to be safe in Christ and him who came to be the one who would justify his people and deal with our sin problem. Thank you for your rule over the kings of this world and even in our own time we have seen our queen succumb to death as we all must and a new king raised in her stead. We can only pray to you that you might have your way and that your kingdom might come. We pray for this and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.